Well, welcome everybody to a little bonus episode. I got an idea that somebody sent me on the internet. I reached out to some awesome friends of mine, and we're doing a little GM roundtable of some Star Wars APs. My name is Chris Berlew. I am the Game Master for the Redemption Podcast. I'm going to throw it over and let the other Game Masters introduce themselves, and then we'll talk about what today's format's going to be. Hi, everyone. I'm Angela. I am the GM for the Fandible Solo Shot. We are a two-person Star Wars actual play podcast following a former Inquisitor in the waning years of the Empire. Hey, I'm Chris Ng. I am from Silhouette Zero, uh, S-I-L-Z-E-R-O. It is a show focusing on Khan Klik-Kachak, who is a short alien. In fact, all of the characters are short aliens, hence the title Silhouette Zero. Um, you can find us at CellZeroMedia.com. Hi, I'm Mark. I'm from uh, Coruscant Nights. Coruscant Nights is a show set during the Clone Wars. Uh, we're an anthology show that brings a new voice or pair of voices to the table every couple weeks. Well, thanks for joining me tonight. The idea with this a little episode, I am going to actually do a bonus episode for Redemption, where I'm just going to have one other person join me. And I realized I've never run a game with just one person. I've always had a group. So I said to myself, why don't I get some experts and get them together and help me learn how to run a game for just one player. So here you guys are. You're my experts. Honored. Finally, the recognition I deserve. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's jump right into it. Why do a game with just one other player? What inspired you guys to do that? Um, I have four kids and I have no friends. <laughs> That's the short version. The slightly longer version was uh, my brother, Matt, who is the player on Silhouette Zero, was moving to San Diego. So he used to come over to my house. We would play video games like once a week. And then he moved to San Diego. And then we were playing video games online once a week. And I was getting kind of tired of it. And at the same time, I was sort of learning about tabletop role-playing games. And um, I was like, let's try this. And he said, don't you need more than one person? I went, I don't know. And we just did it anyway. <laughs> Um, and we had a lot of fun with the first campaign and then I felt like making a podcast and the, the famous story is I said, let's make a podcast. Matt said, no, I said, please. And he said, okay, but I'm not doing any work. He, he has not done any work since. And that has been the arrangement. He shows up to play and that's it. And I do everything else. So we know who the smart one is in the group. Yeah, definitely him. And hey, Mark. A while back, I ran a session for one player. We just happened to be around, we're kind of bored, looking for something to do. They had never played an RPG before, and it ended up being super memorable, fast-paced, emotional. So, I don't know, it was like everything that you could want in a game, and I thought maybe I could replicate that. And um, I think it, it's turned out pretty well. I think one-on-one uh, -on -one is actually like my preferred format of play right now. Awesome. And for Solo Shot, it was kind of a combination of things. Uh, one part is scheduling. We know that is the bane of any role-playing group. And so while with Fandible, we certainly are able to play regularly since we do only play once a week and we've got so many games, sometimes it just feels like you're never going to get to that new story that you've been wanting to try, that new game you've been wanting to try. So my husband and I, Billy, we'd been tossing around ideas for a little while on doing a one-on-one -on -one podcast. We'd actually, we have hidden away in the archives a couple 
couple of of attempts at it that never really went anywhere. But for us, it came down to finally diving into the Star Wars system and discovering that we really liked it. Billy, of course, is a huge Star Wars nerd, and I'm a systems nerd, so that's kind of how uh, we married those together. And uh, also, again, knowing that we started this shortly before uh, we knew that we were going to be having a kid, so we knew that, again, scheduling was going to become an issue, and this was going to be a way for us to keep gaming and keep doing something together when the kid is asleep or with a babysitter, and uh, that we didn't have to try to figure out other people's schedule. Nice. Mark, you said something that just popped in my head. Mm-hmm. Getting that more in-depth emotional pull of a story, mm-hmm. do you think it's easier with just one player? I do, because you don't have so many different personalities that you need to sort of wrangle. You don't have all these different backstories that you need to tie together. You just have one person and what that one person is thinking and feeling and... I, I it's a lot easier, I think, to get that out of the game, get that out of the player and the character. Angela, Chris, what do you guys think on that? Absolutely agree. Uh, not having to manage the other players' backstories really makes it easy to single in on one story, on one set of motivations and you can really tease out the details there and when you find a a rabbit hole that you want to go down and explore you can just do that you don't have to worry about balancing other people's screen time so to speak you know we Mm -hmm. most often when we are all playing together we're playing as friends and we want our friends to feel like they are having a good time and that it's worth their time to be spending hours sitting around the table slinging dice so we try to you know as gms we're always kind of cognizant of that i think when we're gming for a larger group of how can we make sure that everybody is having an equitable stake here so sometimes you might have to ignore interesting plot hooks in favor of of equality there so when it's just one person yeah you get to really zero in and dive in on all the nooks and crannies of a story and since you don't have to worry about possible other distractions story-wise player-wise people at the table it can definitely be a much more intimate and emotional experience nice um yeah i mean you don't get super emotional with my brother it's a little (laughs) weird uh, yeah, but I mean, the, I, see that. the uh, I think the approach is different when you're designing the, the experience. I, I've often likened it to video game RPG, something like Mass Effect, where you get to explore side character stories if you have recurring side characters. Like, I have a lot of recurring side characters. I have this little team, which I play all of them, and I come up with little subplots and things for them, but it's sort of like it's all through the lens of him as the main player and he can control how much of it he wants to see and, uh, you know, affect it in, in those ways, the same way something like a mass effect or even like, um, like a final fantasy to some degree where you have a primary character whose story you're following, but you have all these side options. And so, yeah, it's definitely efficient in that sense. Okay, perfect. You said something I made a note on that I'm going to come back to because I like the idea. I'm also assuming that uh, safety measures or safety guidelines are a lot easier with just one person, which would lead me to session zero, because that's where you're going to establish all that. Mm-hmm. Do you think session zero, well, probably for Angela, since it's your husband, and Chris, since it's your brother, probably a lot easier on that. Oh, yeah. Mark, you have a lot of, uh, 
don't want to use the term revolving cast, but you mm-hmm. you vary who's coming on. Yeah. How do you handle that? Um, my session zeros tend to be a month of chatting uh, over email, text, Discord, whatever, because I need to get to know that character and and uh, we need sort of need to get to know each other ahead of time. A lot of the people, at least in the second season, a lot of people that I'm playing with, I don't know. So there's there's a lot of back and forth ahead of time. We typically don't have time to set aside another separate session for a session zero. So it's just a lot of back and forth ahead of time. Fair enough. Now, since we all do APs, how much when you guys do your session zeros, uh, did you guys think about not just making each of you comfortable, but how much effort you're going to put into making sure the audience is comfortable? I'm weird for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons that I always get a little nervous on these roundtable discussions is that my GM experience is very unorthodox. Okay. The majority of my GM experience is one-on-one, and the majority of it is actual play. So I work in education, and in my last school, I ran a like tabletop role-playing club, and so I would sometimes GM for some of the students, and then I GM for my brother, and then there's like occasional guest stints here and there, and that's pretty much it. So I've never had to wrangle adults as equals. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. I, it's either me and my Fair brother, enough. or like I'm dealing with students and where there's already a, a established power dynamic. And so you say, "Hey, cut that out." They just do it because you're the teacher. <laughs> okay. But you know, going back to the question, uh, we have we very much think about how it is entertainment first and role playing second. You know, it's a show, not a game. So everything is very performative. We're always thinking about, is this going to be interesting for the audience versus like what would be maybe intellectually stimulating for ourselves? And fortunately, it tends to be the same thing. Um, We don't have to edit a lot of stuff out. Most of my editing is me forgetting a rule or counting up successes and then calculating soak. Um, But we kind of ended up being known for being very family friendly um, on our show. And that wasn't necessarily intentional. I think we were just saying uh, like, we don't swear and that just because they don't swear in star Wars. So like that just made sense to us. There's not a lot of like romantic content. Cause I don't, that's weird to do with your brother. <laughs> and then, um, <laughs> you know, I think some, I think the show's gotten a little darker recently in some of the themes but like i don't do violence because i just personally get really squeamish okay and so like really graphic depictions of things being severed and whatever i just grosses me out and so i just avoid that so naturally we ended up being very family friendly and very family attractive i have a lot of fans whose kids listen a lot Mm -hmm. and since that has become a thing, it, it is something I think about. Like, okay, there's all these kids listening. I, I don't want to make... Like, I have I worry about things now more than I used to, like uh, depictions of spice or alcohol. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I try to tone that down or to... I don't know. I don't want to get preachy about it either, but I also don't, don't want to 
glamorize it, if that makes any sense. Um, so oh, no, for sure. that I think has been the only thing that has changed over time is that not knowing the kids are out there listening, I think about the message that I'm portraying, not that we shy away from. I mean, ultimately, Click is a kind of a scumbag. I mean, he's you know chaotic good. He will still cheat and lie and shoot a person. But <laughs> ultimately, I think he cares about the overall justice of things. So... Uh, over on Solo Shot, since we were dealing with, you know, in the first season especially, uh, our main character was an inquisitor for the Empire. This is a character who, in the course of the story, like, even as a PC, has been hunting down Jedi, has been, uh, has has gone on killing rampages when he has been, uh, uh, just kind of really deeply drawn into the dark side. We have a very memorable episode where he kills a bunch of kids. Uh, they were completely infested with the dark side. That is our our excuse for it. They were absolutely, uh, there, there was mm-hmm. no saving them at that point, and then they attacked first. Uh, but we've definitely had these very dark moments in the show, and uh, it's absolutely been part of i think the editing process has been like mm, was this too much was this line too much was this description too much uh so we definitely again i think we're probably all in the same boat thinking about these as shows as entertainment first and how can we put out the best entertainment product that is true to the story that we want to tell because obviously we also need to be satisfied with what we're doing as the the gm and player in our case but also making sure that what we're putting out there is going to keep people coming back week after week. I'm right in the middle. <laughs> I think we are too, to be honest with you. Yeah. We use this, what I call the Star Wars swear words. Mm-hmm. So We do too, yeah. We try to stay away from the swearing. We do have romance in our show. And that actually came up because a patron member of ours said, hey, could you guys put some romance in there? So we threw that in there. We do our best to do most of it, what I call behind the curtain. Mm-hmm. You know, we have the the snuggle pod, as it was called. Oh, these two <laughs> characters go in the snuggle pod. <laughs> the camera goes to somebody else. Like that's we know what goes on. We don't need to discuss it. I mean, uh, I'm on a husband and wife podcast, and it still took us until season four to introduce our first real romantic arc. <laughs> And then the editing for that was, there was literally a point, because I told Billy, like, this is going to be a rom-com episode. Like, we're leaning all in on rom-com tropes. And there was the moment where it's like, if you were watching the movie, the dude needed to kiss her. And Billy was just going to leave. And I was like, dude, think again. (laughs) Now, I I was like, I'm defending Billy. But as a fellow nerd, we don't read women well. He doesn't need to read women well. He needs to read me well. <laughs> Plus, you told him, maybe he's not watching enough rom-coms. Like, are you going to, like, make him sit down and be like, all right, we're going to start with How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. Oh, no, we start with better ones than that. Oh, Netflix okay. is all good rom-coms these days. <laughs> I know. Isn't that weird? I love it. I am here for it. <laughs> uh, and Mark, you said you're in the middle, so you're probably a little closer to what we are. Is that... I, I yeah, think I might have cut you off by accident. That's okay. Um, as far as romance goes, we've just you, we've got one character who goes on a date every once in a while, and yeah. it's it's somebody that I've known for for years. So it's just you know it's just banter between the two of us. And mm-hmm. yeah, uh, violence is we don't really depict anything besides oh he doesn't have an arm anymore. 
point you tell me exactly what happened and then it's usually tame enough that i don't have to really edit much out and then we do have got a couple lost episodes that'll never uh never see the light of day because they just got too dark and um if i see it going in a certain direction i'd try to dial it back but sometimes we just forget that the mic's there and we just continue playing and maybe this isn't going to be on the show but it's going to be a good game for us fair enough yeah there's the one more thing i I will mention and i think actually angela and i talked about this a long time ago um is uh the one thing i do think about is diversity representation um and you know how do i do that it's a little weird because my entire cast of characters is literally aliens um i think this season is the first time i've had a human on the team partly because when you're only using silhouette zero characters you're kind of stuck to using aliens all the time but yeah um the so like i you know i'm half asian and i i sometimes think about how do i include some of that cultural experience that me and matt have had growing up as you know asian americans into the show so like occasionally you know they're eating star wars asian food somewhere or or stuff like that like some of those things come up and i try to make that a little bit intentional sometimes and then the other kind of flip side of that is i get really ambitious with my accents i do worry about whether they're going to be culturally offensive to anybody and so like one of my main characters is toydarian um and there is a significant justified criticism about watto's choice of accent of being sort of anti-semitic and so i knew i didn't want to go that route but i really wanted a toydarian um and so what i I remember working really hard on how i was going to portray that accent i i sort of went with the toydarians in the clone wars which were portrayed Mm -hmm. a little bit more i would kind of say turkish accent and i say turkish because i was getting my master's degree and two of the people in there were from Turkey, and that was sort of their accent, too. Oh, and so okay. that accent for Jinko is a, a mashup of the Clone Wars accent and actually those two guys. And so I would I would talk to them, and I would listen really carefully to how they would pronounce things, and I kind of modeled it after them. And I went, okay, I'm comfortable with this because they're based off people <laughs> and not stereotypes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you bring that up, we have kind of a agreement, the Trade Federation. Uh, they all just talk normal. Yeah. We try not to use the uh, episode one mm-hmm. uh, speech patterns they had there. We just talk normal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I have constantly avoided the Moidians for that, and I, I've never, I should just do that because I'm not sure how to deal with that. <laughs> I guess I could just do that. Just no, forget it. No accent. It's gone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And we've got that whole district of Gungans that just talk like you and I. Yeah. Everybody here is pretty aware on that one. And I definitely think it's something that everybody should be aware of. Mm-hmm. Also, just a Gungan accent is hard. I actually did do <laughs> one. Uh, more so just uh, like looking at the, the words that, that Jar Jar would like just completely replace with something mm-hmm. different, doing that sort of thing. I also made it harder because I wanted him to be so far removed from jar jar that i was doing this really deep guttural voice and guess what i don't naturally have a deep and guttural <laughs> voice so i've sworn that, that is the one and only time that that gungan is ever showing up or I any really <laughs> did almost the same thing i had an arc on naboo and the gungan there 
was like the most overstated, most dangerous creature I've ever created. Like he had Brawl Six, like Melee Twelve. I don't know. Like he was so dangerous. Um, for that same reason, I was like, we're gonna go anti Jar Jar. Exactly. I'm like, these these people live underwater with all these creatures. They've got to be dangerous, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, oh, I agree. Uh, we've only had a, a Gungan waiter, and he just took an order. So I've gotten lucky to avoid that one. Let's jump down to the next thing on my my little list I have here. When it comes to narrative control of scenes, how much easier is it just to have you and the other person? Do you feel more confident in their ability, or are you a little less confident? See, I'm super curious to hear what Angela has to say about this because... And I'm, I am mean, I haven't listened to your show in a while. I kind of fell off the, the thing. But like at the beginning, what I noticed the difference between your show, Angela, and mine was that you don't really have the support crew. Like Billy's kind of on his <laughs> own a lot more than <laughs> like my I have a whole team. Each season, there's basically a, a, a team that to counterbalance the missing skills that Matt's character has, because especially since he picked hot shot <laughs> it's like the most dangerous glass cannony <laughs> career spec even the talents are are risky you know <laughs> um and mm-hmm. so you just need player like other characters nearby and i know a lot of people frown upon gmpcs or whatever but for us it works really well um and again i think the the model is a role playing game it's like okay you're the one in charge but, you know, you give me orders and I will literally say like, okay, it's this person's turn. What do you, what do you want him to do? And if he has an idea, I'll do that. If he doesn't have an idea, he'll just say like, I don't know. What do you think he should do? And I could pitch an idea. I'll be like, well, maybe he'll go over there and do that. And if he likes it, he'll go with it. And I just, we just do it that way. It's just back and forth negotiation. In terms of like narrative scenes, like uh, non-combative, the character of Click is unpredictable. Matt is unpredictable, which is why I like doing the whole thing is that, you know, I create, I mean, my show is pretty railroady, to be honest with you. Like there's a thing, there's a, there's a path to follow. And typically Matt just follows the path because he doesn't have a better idea. He's like, okay, we'll just go down the path. Every once in a while, he'll go, no, we're not going to go down the path. I'm going to go over here. But most of the time, he just kind of follows whatever I've laid out. But it's that interaction. I I don't know what he's going to say. (laughs) And then that's part of him as a character and part of him as a player. It's like, I just, when he starts talking to people, I just don't really know what's going to happen there. And that's the part I, I enjoy about it. And I give him full control to do that. In fact, there's a segment now at the end of the show, starting in season two, called Matt asks the question, which is, did I do anything that surprised you? And I will just blatantly tell him like, yes or no. And I'll explain why. And that was that came about because at the end of recordings, we would just literally talk about that. And then I kind of thought, well, maybe it would be interesting if, for the audience to know what was like completely off left field for me. And so to see how that affected how the story went forward in general, you know, with Matt and again, uh, he's my brother. So we have full and complete trust of each other and we know each other so well that there isn't a, a risk of like, whew, this guy's a dud. Like, I don't, 
<laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't know how this is going to come out. I think Mark probably deals with that terror more than anybody. <laughs> uh, so for me, so on the, the topic of support characters and other NPCs, we have two people that support Castian, Billy's character. We have a droid, uh, the R3B1 unit called Bone, and then Laris, who is his pilot, his and has become much more than that. She's a confidant, she's a, a friend, she is actually now his captain because of shenanigans that have happened. So there's been a little bit of a, a power switch between them. But the reason that there's not more isn't because I'm against like GMPCs because I absolutely you're right, Chris. There are a lot of people that just deride those in general. It's just I hate managing NPCs. So whether the <laughs> game has like five or six players or one player, I'm like, I don't want to deal with with NPCs. Like if you want to do something, we're going to figure out a way for you to do it. Uh, whether you've got the skills or not, like you will either find a person convenient there that can help you or you will find a tool, something like that, just because like there's already so much for me to keep track of in terms of things that are the obstacles that my players need to overcome that I cannot then also be like, and here's the people who are, are helping you. So even those two support characters, very often I find ways for them to be incapacitated or sent somewhere else and have their own little side quests going on because I dealing with Billy is enough. Uh, because <laughs> <laughs> And I say that with love because uh, in terms of narrative control in an individual episode, I definitely wield most of it. But and this goes back to kind of what we were talking about at the beginning with what are the benefits of having a single player and being able to really dive into their story is that Billy and I actually do a lot of the meta plotting together. So this isn't a case where the GM has all the story and all the ideas and I'm going to be surprising my player at every turn. We know where we're going to start. And he knows where we, where we are aiming. Obviously, we play to find out. We play to fail. Uh, we fail forward. So sometimes that ending might, we might not end up quite where we were planning to end up. But we have a progression where we know we are aiming to go. If nothing better comes along, we want to end up at point B after starting at point A. So we figure all that out kind of beforehand. We script out the season in a series of arcs that we know are going to be three to four ses sessions each. And then when we're in the middle of those sessions, that's when Billy is a little more adrift and not sure what exactly is going to be happening next. But again, he knows like, all right, we're supposed to be trying to find this doctor on Alderaan. So that's what I'm going to be trying to do every step of the way as Angela is throwing new new plot hooks in his path. See, that's super interesting to me. I would never do that. That's really interesting. <laughs> Only because Matt's rule is very specific. Don't tell me anything. He does not want to know anything. That's Yeah, it's totally... <clears throat> excuse me, that was my voice being weird. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, I, totally, it depends on the, the player. It depends on the character. It depends on the type of story you're telling. Um, again, this also helps because Billy is a huge Star Wars nerd. This guy knows so much about Star Wars. I'm always trying to play catch up with him. So that's when I'm like, hey, I think that we should try to do this. And he's like, yes, there's definitely a, a planet that we should be going to. Here's an alien race that specializes in that sort of thing. And from there, then I have my start to go down a Wikipedia rabbit hole rather than just me staring <laughs> at Wikipedia or the books and going like, I need to find a thing and I don't know what it is. Right. Right. No, that's just, I just think it's super interesting. That's really interesting to me. I got to catch up on your show now. <laughs> I, I 
curious, Mark, because you have yeah. like I said, kind of the rotating cast. How do you deal with the narrative control? And kind of what I'm thinking is, my players have done this whole, I'm leading them in this direction. They decide, oh, I want to go to a bar. Mm-hmm. So the first time they did, I'm like, cool, what's it look like? I was like, you're going to go off my script. You're going to make it up. My players love that. Yeah. How often do you get to do that as just doing it with one player? I do it all the time. It sort of depends on how well I know the player. Like if I am playing with a friend, I actually do play with my most recurring player is my brother, Doug. And he and I know each other well enough that he'll show me his character. I'll be like, okay, that's Spider-Man. I know how <laughs> Spider-Man stories go. And, and and we can play off those ideas and tropes well enough that, um, he, I mean, he's he's not the GM, but there's a lot more give and take between him and me than with uh, somebody that I probably have never played with before. But for me, the sessions change. I come up with an idea for a session and we start in that direction. Um, My newest set of episodes is like I planned a very creepy space station story. And then through getting to know the character, I figured out that, oh, this story is not the, the big creepy space station story. This is the story of her figuring out herself. So I'm pretty flexible, and um, my GM style is very improvisational. I tend to have two or three scenes that I want to hit by the end of the game, try to make them modular so they can fit in wherever we are, and then um, hopefully we hit them. Nice. That's similar to how I plan with a group. I call mm-hmm. it my story points. Yeah. Hopefully we can get to some of these story points, what order they're going to be done in. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Are they going to be done this week or six months down the road? I don't know. Just kind of see how it goes. And part of it is that sort of um, prep time, session zero, chatting. You figure out what this character needs in a story, and then you have your story points to to try and hit in-game. See, and I'm lucky because I have a player who wants to know a lot of the stuff beforehand and another player that wants to know nothing. Mm -hmm. So I get to have kind of the ping-pong effect. So since I've got this sort of um, anthology show with characters that just sort of pass through the city, we get a lot of NPCs that cross over between episodes. Okay. And because my style, it tends to be more improvisational. um, I don't generally give people NPCs that they can work with. Okay. But if they seek someone out, if they find someone to help them, that person will go along with them. And sometimes that sort of disrupts the the story arc that I had an idea for that character, but it usually makes it more interesting because I think working as a team, you just generally generate better ideas than you do by yourself. Uh, Yeah. I'm a fan of GM PCs. I mean, I have two in my normal game. Mm -hmm. Both are droids, so it's easy for me to put them in the back. Both of them have very strong personalities, so that can sometimes be useful. Do you guys ever use those PCs to push the story or do you just kind of let them ride the wave, so to speak? Oh, all the time for me, all the time. Sometimes it's actually necessary. Jeez. So I guess season one, I didn't really have like a plot at first. I just kind of threw the the plot was, hey, you're on this crew. uh, The ship is broken. Make money so we can fix the ship. 
And then I kind of eventually figured out what to do with that. Only because I had one character whose backstory was sort of interesting. I made her a ex-scientist that worked on the Death Star. Oh. And she was on the run. And then it ended up being that she was part of a whole colony of draw scientists that the Empire had picked up. And so... Now she found out that all of her other scientist friends were in danger. So now you got to go rescue all the draw. Collect all the draw. Collect all eight. <laughs> but until that point, it was sort of like I didn't really, I didn't have a plan. And so it, it, I had to would just like, if I didn't really have a direction and if Matt hadn't picked a direction, some character had to do something to generate forward momentum. Since then, season two and especially season three, there's definitely a more definitive goal that drives all of the narrative. So I don't have to worry so much about that. But because the characters have been so well established by now, they have their own motivations and things that are going forward. And we actually want to know. The audience wants to know. We want to know like what's happening to them or what what's their next change in their life. And especially if there's a big time skip for me between season two and season three. It's more, I don't know. It's kind of weird. I think the the comment I get most about my show is like, it's only two people, but it doesn't really feel like it because of the way that I use the characters. I mean, I have entire conversations with myself, okay. which is weird because then I will go back and listen to them in editing and be like, oh, that was pretty good. Like, <laughs> And then I feel like a jerk because I'm like, wow, so now you're you know, praising yourself for how good a person you are. But it was <laughs> like the characters have just fully formed to the point where like, yeah, they can have a conversation. They're just using my mouth. I think that's a lot harder than people realize. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So like I said, I've got two droids, and one is in, he's the ex-lab assistant for Darth Plagueis. So the other droid is trying to teach him ethics and morals. Mm-hmm. So I've tried to have conversations with the two, and then I get tripped up because I'm like, wait a minute. The droid teaching morals and ethics has got a gambling addiction, so <laughs> is he really the right one to be doing this? Yes, absolutely he is. Yeah. Gambling's legal. <laughs> His addiction also leads him to cheat. Oh, okay. Well, that's less legal. I have a hard time with it, too, because I feel like I'm taking away from the player's spotlight, and I don't want to take away from their spotlight. But I would think if you're just another, just you and another player, you would have to have those moments where NPCs would be talking. Do you ever have your other, I guess the other person that's there with you play those NPCs? Matt doesn't like it. Okay. So there, I always like to call it, um, Matt plays one and a half characters, especially for season one and two, because okay. we have a droid, Kobe, whom we share. So Matt is responsible for his experience points, his character sheet, and basically most of his decisions. But then sometimes I will use Kobe in conversational points. So we kind of push that character back and forth. Season three, Matt actually has two characters because it's Click and his grandson, which you can do because um, Chadrafan aged twice the rate of humans. So even though Click is only 32, he's actually 64 biologically. Um, and his grandson is 10, but actually 20 biologically. So he's actually playing both of those characters. And while the grandson is the actual technical PC and Click has been relegated to NPC status, he has gotten a lot better at talking to himself uh, because that was just required of the character. The grandson has to talk to the grandfather once in a while. Other than that, no, every other random NPC has to be me, which has... (laughs) I remember one time 
he went up to an Aqualish in a bar to ask him for information about ships that were leaving the station. And I don't know what happened to my head, but all of a sudden, this Aqualish became the most useless NPC to talk to of all time. Not only did he not know anything, he was afraid of space travel. (laughs) So, Click goes, how did you get on the station? And then he goes, I was taken here against my will and now I can't get out because I'm too afraid to leave. (laughs) And he went, okay, well, you're useless. (laughs) He's like, why did you do that? And I went, I don't know. I don't know what happened. It It just scrambled in my head and that's what happened. I don't know where I was going with any of this. But the point being is like, yeah, I'm stuck doing all the NPCs, whether I like it or not. <laughs> okay. For me, it's again how well I know the player. In a, a recent recording, I it was with two people, not one. So mm-hmm. feel free to cut this. But <laughs> <laughs> off topic. How uh-huh, dare you yeah. bring three people? <laughs> yeah, they were they were playing um, some people in sort of an arena fight. And we kept referencing this announcer, and it was a, a Troig, one of those two-headed guys. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, we keep referencing these these guys. I don't want to do two voices. I think you two would be really good at doing announcer voices. Can you two just do a little, like, 30 seconds of announcer banter? Mm-hmm. So it, it usually, for me, tends to be people that I know really well, that I know will be able to do it without making the story weird or something. People that I know are better at it than uh, I, I trust them a little bit more than than people that I don't really know. Fair enough. I do at my normal fandable games, but I'm realizing that for the solo shot, nope, I do them all. And again, also, I very rarely allow there to be more than one NPC in the room. So, <laughs> and like I referenced my two GM PCs earlier, one of them is a droid who does not have uh, the the sort of voice modulator that A1 has. So what I do is if we need him to talk, I'll just mutter. It's like, yeah, this is what Bone is saying. And then Billy cuts that and puts in some beeps and he's gotten really good about repeating you know kind of translating for the audience what bone has said so i don't have to do it and then the other thing that we'll do just so that it's not always my voice because i i like to think that i'm pretty good at doing different character voices and different npc voices between accents and then just different vocal tics but there are some things that i'm just never going to be able to do like it doesn't matter how many settings you change in audacity i can't sound like darth vader so at the table i will do the lines and then in post billy will sometimes re-record them uh and do uh, do other effects if necessary but that's how we get some more variation in there we've done the same mm-hmm. and i'll i'll be honest the reason that a1 has a a voice box is because we were trying to do the beeps and boops at the table, but we were so new at editing, it just didn't fit right, and it didn't flow right, so we're like, we'll give him a voice box. He can talk. Let's just keep it easy. <laughs> well, that's why I ended up having, when I picked a Jawa, I'm like, I don't think Jawas speak basic, um, which is how uh, my Tazi character ended up with a... Oh. You have one, too. She has a voice box, but basically it's a droid that instantaneously translates whatever she's saying into basic while she's talking. So that's how that ended up. She sounds like a droid, although she is a Jawa. Um, And then, of course, I had to. That was, oh, my gosh, that was so much experimentation to get those settings right, because I needed her to be higher pitched without it sounding like a chipmunk. 
And then I switched from Audacity to Audition. I had to do the process again of trying to find exactly the right settings. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, th- those those special effects will save you. I have one saved for every alien race. So I've got a Duros, I've got a Thorian, I've got Rodian, I've got um, Zecto, because I use a lot of Zecto. I've got generic droid. I have droid coming over a communication speaker, like uh, through a comm. Uh, I've got Zecto coming through a comm, because I have one that's a pilot, so he's always talking on the thing. So I, those presets can save your life. I've got a Hut one. Hut one's good. Nice. We've got quite a few presets, too. Sometimes I get um, the previous PCs showing up in later episodes, which is fun because then I get to sort of emulate the voice that they chose for their character. But then I usually get them to to come back and either overdub or sometimes it's just me being, I'm Saul Dixon and this is what Saul (laughs) sounds like. (laughs) Um, I guess game mechanic wise, a couple simple questions that popped in my head when you guys make your destiny pool if you've only got one player you're only rolling one die how do you adjust that so that you actually have an actual pool to work with we just start with two of each two dark side two light side at the start of every arc we just start with one of each i roll one force die per character okay so if if the team has five characters there'll be five dice um for season one and two for season three it starts five and five because I have murdered and mangled the force system. <laughs> uh, so their force powers are powered by destiny points, so I need them to have more access to them. Um, so will they just start in five and five? Do you guys use the morality system with the force dice? Uh, no. Nah. Well, see, the problem is that I have gone so far afield of the original force and destiny rules that... What I was, I am tracking morality. What I was doing was if for every major negative point, I would just add an extra destiny token, right? So it would be six dark if they were dark society and five light. Okay. But then it got to a point where I had eight and eight on each side. And I was like, this is too many destiny points on the table. <laughs> like it, it just wasn't because their force powers are powered by destiny points. They weren't ever running out. And so that wasn't like that portion of the mechanic the resource management wasn't mm-hmm. uh ever threatened so i have now gone back to five and five and if you have overly dark morality it'll be four and six okay that's a good way of balancing it we don't use it in our game one part because the players weren't comfortable having the game mechanic influence the players decisions mm. so they didn't want to have to go oh well i'll have to take five morality if i do that you know all that other neat stuff. I just said, okay, cool. Then that allows me narratively to punish you, so to speak, for doing bad things here. Mm-hmm. So if you're a Jedi and you use the Jedi mind trick to convince somebody to like you, I'm going to throw that back at you later somehow. Mark, Angela, do either of you guys really work on that scale? Very closely for Solo Shot because we started with a dark side character and we knew we wanted him to become a light side character. Uh, So he started at 30 morality. So that is, yeah, that is deep into the dark side. And at one point it actually dropped to 20. And I think it's if you drop below 10, don't you lose control of your character? Uh, Because you're just so 
embroiled in the dark side. So he's worked his way up. It took three years, but he started season four at 70 morality, making him a light side paragon. So what we discovered is when he was a dark sider and the rules say like once you become like the the dark side paragon, I'm sure there's a different word for it. um, But once you drop to 30 morality or below, to use the light side of the force, you need to not only take strain, but it costs a destiny point. Because it is yep. very, very hard for you to tap into the light side of the force when you're just so corrupted by darkness. And now that Billy is at 70, it's like, okay, great. He can use whatever side of the force he wants. Everything's going to be fine. And then we read the rules closer. It's like, oh, no, once you're a paragon, then you're supposed to start spending strain and destiny points for using the dark side of the force, which we've decided to uh, house rule a little bit, where he'll still take strain if he's using the dark side of the force, but he doesn't need to use a destiny point because in our view, the dark side should always be alluring. Uh, especially for this character who actually had like a personification of the dark side of the force trying to seduce him um, quite literally because again his wife is the GM and <laughs> well played so it's like he he was so in, influenced by it and you know like Bane you know he's kind of born into it he lived in it he was formed by it so it doesn't make sense for it to for he ha- for him to have to worry about the resource management to make sure he always has the right destiny point in order to use the dark side it's like nope you can use it at any time again there are going to be repercussions both mechanically and narratively if you are dipping into that side of the force but we wanted mechanically for it to be as easy as possible for him to do that I really love the system, but I don't mm-hmm. use it. I'm using it currently <laughs> yeah. in a in a home game and I'm using it very faithfully. But I think in a in a one shot, it just doesn't really work. Same for duty and obligation. We just sort of skip those, and then if you have that obligation, it's going to come up in the narrative. We kind of do the same thing with obligation. Uh, that's partially my decision. Because I don't like the idea at the beginning of the game of rolling dice, and now I have to work something in that the yeah. dice that told me I have so to. That so weird when I was looking at it. It's like, no, I don't know. I've got other things to do. Yeah. I've got enough planning to do, right? My my characters, are, my players are going to throw enough random stuff at me. I don't need to worry about a dice table doing the same thing. Yeah, I agree. So we kind of ignore that part, too. I think it's great for newer game masters that need a little help pushing the characters. Yeah. But I think people who have experience and know how to play in a game it just gets in the way but while while we're talking about modifying mechanics so the one mm-hmm. thing when you're doing one player and i don't know this might be partly because i'm using silhouette zero characters and i made the decision early on that they were all going to have brawn one okay because they're small and therefore not strong because of that battles are really tricky especially in a one player situation um and so one of the things i actually changed in season two was that minions and rivals do not have soak okay which you would say why would you do that (laughs) and the reason i would say is what i hated was because again our whole deal was like we want this to be as star wars as possible you know the team rounds a corner there's two stormtroopers Oh, blast them. You shoot them. And it's like, okay, so after soak of laminate armor, they've taken one wound. They've got 10 more. (laughs) And you're like, but in the movie, he would have shot him and he would have fallen over and that would have been the end of it. Right. So especially minions, um, I do not apply soak. Uh, My theory, especially in season two, which was a age of rebellion 
season was I could always add more stormtroopers if I need them, but it's really disappointing to have a battle and you're shooting them and they're not going down because I think the game designers were a little overzealous in making the combat too balanced, which is great when you're fighting a nemesis and terrible when you're supposed to be getting rid of all the minions. Um, And so that's one of the things I sometimes recommend to people that are trying to do one-player games just because otherwise the combat can be... Especially if you don't have a lot of like GMPCs or other team members, they you're going to take all the damage and it's going to go quick. I think along that you um, really need to know what the PC is good and bad at. Otherwise, it is pretty easy to stall a game pretty quickly. Rolling for the right things is important and then just giving the answers when you know it's not going to work out for them if they roll. Yep. Yeah, I will say balancing combat is absolutely one of my my weak points. Uh, For one thing, I never know when Billy is going to pull out a lightsaber, and lightsabers (laughs) can completely (laughs) change the tone of combat. (laughs) So again, he's trying to, sometimes he's trying to be really chill and undercover, and I'm like, great, I've got a guy that's got like cortosis staffs and stuff, and that's you know, this is going to be a slog because you insist on using a, a blaster. Whereas if you pulled and then sometimes like I'm going to pull out my lightsaber and be a badass. And I'm like, it was a Gungan or a Jawa. <laughs> like, what did they do to you? <laughs> uh, so absolutely like balancing combat. This this it, I think combat is where it shows that this isn't a system that is designed to be done by one player. I, I think there's so much of it, like in terms of flavor, in terms of story and other parts of mechanics that it works for one player. But in combat is always where I'm like, I never can tell where to put the the difficulty of my PC. And then I go and run Star Wars for a full group of people like I did. I had the the opportunity to do it for mm-hmm. Redemption. And you guys practically one-shotted the, the big bad that I sent at you. It's like, oh, yes, there's four of you. <laughs> <laughs> you actually jumped ahead on my list, which is awesome. Uh, that's one of my thoughts is balancing encounters because – you know, like Angela just said, my group will focus fire on one thing. Mm. I mean, you have that in this situation, but I get nervous about trying to balance that, especially if you have a player like me who the dice just kind of giggle when you put them in their hand <laughs> and you roll them and you hear them laughing and you watch them all roll the blanks and you're like, hey, thanks. I, I missed again. Yeah, I think um, that's why I took off the soak because, again, like it's. If the battle's too easy, you can make it harder. If it's too hard, it's awkward to make it less hard. You know, it's like, oh, I left something in the oven. I got to (laughs) go. Like, (laughs) wait, what? Um, The other thing is, I think, and this is something Matt does all the time, which is he will not attack the enemy. He will attack the environment. Because with the advantage and triumphs in play, it's like, if I shoot my blaster at the stormtrooper, you have to use all these rules to calculate damage or whatever. If I shoot it at the chandelier above him, there are no rules governing that, and therefore I can <laughs> spend my advantages and triumphs to basically get rid of them immediately. Um, oh, and since it smart. happened to work well with the character anyway, I didn't have to worry about balancing as much, especially, like, there was one time he was on Coruscant, and he was trying to... to rescue a hollow vid actress and i put 
intentionally. I'm like, this is going to be hard. There's going to be 10 stormtroopers and there's going to be a rival command leader. And I've, and I, you know, brushed up on the squadron rules. And instead, he, he sideswiped him with a ship <laughs> and sent them all plummeting <laughs> nice. into the depths of Coruscant. I went, okay, well, I guess that happened. <laughs> he rolled a triumph. So what was I going to say? <laughs> I think advantages and threats and triumphs and despairs to affect the environment is a, it's a big part of how I tend to do combat. Thinking back to that same Spider-Man one, thinking about it because I edited it this morning, he, he's in a fight with bullies, as Spider-Man tends to get. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you've got this crowd of people around them. Okay, I'm going to push bully number one into the crowd. It's going to take him his whole turn to get out of this crowd because of all my... Uh, advantages the crowd's jostling him and i can focus on these other guys next turn i I think the gm's ability to or willingness to go along with that and um say okay my guy rolled like four threats what bad thing do i want to happen to him so that this guy uh, the the pc has a chance to shine on his next turn because it is still the pc's story regardless of what bad guys he's up against yeah, I, th- I think the threats, advantages, and all that are a great way to get that across. Oh, I agree. I throw those at my players. If you roll advantages or I roll threats, yeah. all right, cool. What do we want to happen? Right. What should happen with these threats? And I usually find that they punish themselves more when they roll <laughs> threats. And I'm like, cool, what should these threats be? Oh, I dropped my blaster. Well, all right, that was only one threat, but cool. You dropped your blaster. Yeah, it's like, I'm not going to stop you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anything else you guys can think of that's good for somebody that's going to plan a game for just one player? Anything I didn't think of? Sitting here thinking about it, I think the Mandalorian is actually a good template. It's one dude, and then he shows up to the scene, and then there's usually someone who happens to be useful to the thing he's trying to do. Um, So that can be your, your one NPC. I'm thinking particularly like episode two Mandalorian. Sorry, spoilers for the Mandalorian. If for some reason you are listening to this, I've never seen it. Stop listening now. Go watch it. We'll be here when you get back. Yeah, seriously. Yes. Um, you know, Mando lands on a unnamed desert planet and like uh, Jawas steal all of his ship parts. And then it's like, okay, well, great. Now I've got this Ugnot character who knows the area, mm-hmm. probably built high for survival stat um you know is going to be able to help you wrangle the blarg and you know have good negotiation stats so that they can talk to the jawa but isn't going to help you when it's time to fight the the big monster at the end that's that's your part because you pick the character you pick the mandalorian that punches stuff so go go do your punching you know even in a, in a battle situation the ig unit from episode one or two where like you know you, he's mm-hmm. walked into a fight that's you know, the GM has made too many enemies. And so like, oh, by the way, here's another bounty hunter who is also super good. And now this battle is uh, attainable. So actually, I think the Mandalorian might be a good template for those of you looking to, to make this happen. My boilerplate advice is always give give them a droid. Droids can fix your stat deficiencies and they don't have to be a full-blown character. And it, it, it makes it feel a lot more Star Wars-y. I agree. 100% on that one. I think um, kind of expanding on that point is when there's one player or one character, I think sometimes there is an idea, like especially if they've come from playing with 
with traditional groups, it's like, well, in a group setting, we're often thinking about party balance. You know, you've got somebody that can do everything. You've got a fighter, you've got a talker, you've got a rogue, that sort of thing. And I think there might be an instinct sometimes when you're playing just one character. It's like, ah, I need to be really well-rounded and be able to do everything, right? No, no, be Mando. You've got one thing that you can do. You can do it very, very well. Like, totally feel free to specialize. And I do think the Star Wars system definitely lends itself to that. I mean, our careers are literally called specializations. But don't feel like that means that you're not going to be able to play a well-rounded campaign because absolutely there should be an NPC or two at any given location that can help round out your character. I, I absolutely agree, Chris, that that second episode of Mandalorian is a perfect reference there. Uh, just you laying it out like that. It's like, yeah, I hadn't thought of it that way, but absolutely that's a one-player campaign and it's just different PC, uh, NPCs that are coming in to round out Mandalorian because God knows that man can't talk. <laughs> <laughs> He also would do a terrible job in a rom-com episode. He also would not be good at it. (laughs) (laughs) That's because he won't take his helmet off. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, My final advice would be um, invest in that PC. Uh, Get invested in the story that they're bringing with them, their past, their strengths, their flaws. And I think that's really where a good story is going to come from especially in my case, especially in a, in a one shot situation, that backstory, their secrets and interests, that's what's going to tell a good story. I I agree. Awesome. I could type that back to the Mandalorian if you want. (laughs) (laughs) Manda's got secrets. I have a question that I'm going to ask that has nothing to do with playing games with just one player. I have been asked by a, a gentleman at, couple different conventions this question how would you do two capital ships fighting how would you do that scene he basically says he's got two (laughs) star destroyers that are fighting each other how would you run that i think i I spoke would you say angela i said i wouldn't do it because ship combat in star wars sucks that's my answer. That was my if answer. If you want it to happen, you narrate it. It's just like, hey, this ship A is firing at ship B. Ship B tries deploys TIE fighters and just narrate it because ship combat is the worst thing in Star Wars. I'm sorry if anybody else disagrees because you're wrong. I still respect you as people. <laughs> uh, you go, Mark. I actually did this. Yeah. So I, I'm oh, going to look great. up my rules that I wrote for it. Hold on. Oh, awesome. For me, it would be a situation on the ship is much more important than the actual battle between the the two ships. Is there a traitor on the ship that getting rid of the traitor is going to change the change the outcome of the battle? Um, is there intel that can be gathered? I think there are much more interesting stories on the actual ships than what is happening on the outside of the ships. Even if we we look at Return of the Jedi. Mm-hmm. Um, we're at the whole battle of Endor. We see the faces of people in their ships more often than I think we see the ships on the outside. The, the things that they are accomplishing inside their ships are just, they're more important. Otherwise we wouldn't have Admiral Akbar saying, that's a trap. <laughs> what I had suggested to him was focus on what your PCs are doing and not so much this cool mechanics that you want to play with. I said, but if you players really want to do it, I would group all the guns in like 
10 guns fire at the same time and just figure out your damage. Treat them almost like minions in a way. That was the best I could come up with. But I agree with you, Mark. Focus on what the players are doing on the ship. And what I said to him is if you know if you want one side to win or lose, use that based on what the players are doing. Mm-hmm. So if they're in there to sabotage something and they don't sabotage it, their ship blows up. They have to escape. Um, the new Genesis uh, expanded player's guide has really good capital ship rules, if I remember correctly. Oh. And I believe it's going to take me a second. What does it show? Excess advantage. Oh, yep. He focuses on Genesis and uh, some of his latest episodes are about using those rules. Nice. Okay. Here's what I did. <laughs> All right. I'm listening. A, a couple of years ago, I started getting really influenced by some of more of the, I guess, more storytelling games and less, so stuff with less uh, mechanical crunch. Mm-hmm. Stuff like Blades in the Dark, right? Okay. So if you have you all played Blades in the Dark? Yes. Okay. Nope. Okay. So yes. Blades in the Dark is very much more like representational than it is like blow by blow. So you're building up dice pools for like an entire scene rather than like an, a single action, right? And so like I really like that because it kind of broad strokes a bunch of stuff that might otherwise be super boring. Mm-hmm. So what I, I started playing around with a lot, especially with Starship Combat in general, was um, using more opposed roles rather than um, the static ones that are suggested. So I actually have an entire alternate combat system I invented for Starship fighting where you are, depending if you're the attacker or the defender, you you pick one of a couple of options. So if you're the attacker, you can shoot, corner, or disengage. And if you're attacker, you're using gunnery. If you're if you're trying to corner, you're using pilot. And if you're the defender, you pick how you're defending. So if you're defending aggressively, it's actually a opposed gunnery skill. So if the attacker rolls three threats or despair, they basically get a free shot in return. So the way I think of it is because I played way too much X-Wing versus TIE Fighter when I was a teen, um, would be like, if an enemy fighter is coming at you... You might just want to, like, and you're in a hardier fighter, you might just want to hold the line and see if you can shoot them down before they shoot you down, right? And then there was, like, you could taunt them where you use, so it would be their gunnery versus your cool. You could do defensive, which would be their gunnery versus your piloting. And so because I was really into these sort of, uh, what do you call it, opposed role checks for this big capital ship battle I did, I just made them opposed roles. So depending on how many systems they had active... Well, the size of the ship determined the base number. So a Star Destroyer would be like a four-dice pool, and they were fighting a frigate, which was a three-dice pool. And then depending on the number of systems and or commanders in play would affect that dice pool. So a Star Destroyer that had its um, shields operational, all of its guns operational, and, you know, its communications might be three red, one purple, whereas uh, the frigate, which would have... You know, all the same things would be three yellow. So it'd be three yellow against three red, one purple. What's the result of that? And then if actions taken by uh, the crew were positive or negative, you'd add blues that way. So it would be like um, like if you had a really good charismatic leader on the frigate, it would be a blue for that. If to to clarify, Matt isn't on the capital ship when this is happening. He's in a starfighter when this is happening. Okay. So like if he did something really cool 
during his turn, that might be a black for the Star Destroyers if he was, like, distracting them, or blues for the frigate if he, like, opened up a pathway of fire. And so I did this sort of very um, symbolic dice pool. And then as more damage went on one way or the other, you'd start losing... If you lost systems, they would get downgraded. If you lost hull, you'd start losing dice in the pool. So it would go from four purple to three purple to two purple to one as like they took on more and more damage. So if you're trying to look for a representational thing, try it out. It worked pretty good the one time I did it. Of course, I did let him destroy a Star Destroyer because he did the traditional maneuver of destroying the shield generators and then torpedoing the bridge. (laughs) So, you know, you have to let him have that when he does it correctly. But, you know, uh, try that out. See how it works. Email me. Let me know how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. I, it was just a question that I was I was intrigued by it because, like I said, he asked me it twice. And the first time I thought I answered it well. And <laughs> Apparently not. <laughs> awesome. Well, I mean, that's all I had written down. Is there anything else you guys want to? I mean, we've got a little bit of time here. Anything else you guys want to talk about? Any other questions that you've ever run into as a game master that people have asked you? Hmm. I don't think I've been doing this long enough. <laughs> Nobody's asking me anything. They will. I think. Yeah. yeah I think it's weird. I think uh, obviously Angela's got way more experience than me in general. I think I get a lot of the "how do I do this one player thing" questions a lot, probably because I think I've been doing it longest in that format. I'm not exactly sure. I think Jeff Stormer, who does the Party of One podcast. Uh-huh. Um, I think he and I started right around the same time. And I wish I had known that because I felt really weird starting off because basically everywhere I looked at the time was like, nah, you can't do that. <laughs> and I went, but I don't have any other friends. <laughs> and it was like, <laughs> yeah, you really can't do it. I went, I'm just going to do it anyway. And if nobody listens, I don't care. See, um, you were a born GM. It's like, don't tell me, don't tell me the odds, <laughs> don't tell me the rules. I'm just gonna yeah. do, go do it. Yeah, I, I think um, if you're thinking about it, try it out. Uh, there's really yeah. this system works okay. I have <clears throat> Matt and I have played other systems sometimes as one shot episodes for our show, sometimes just for fun to give you the rundown of what works and what doesn't work. Mm-hmm. D&D 5e doesn't work very well. What is that game? No worries about me trying that one. Numenera works okay. I don't think I'm very good at Numenera. I wish I were better at it because I think it's a cool game. Um, I don't think I get the rules that well, but I think Numenera works okay. Ryutama, the Japanese game about um, going on a gentle quest, works super well. Um, love that game for that. I think I know a show that can help you with Numenera. Yeah, I've they've got a I long have, shot one that they've been I have doing for a while. To many episodes trying mm-hmm. to figure it out, and I just I don't know. I, there's something about the system that keeps messing me up every time I try to use it. I have to bother. I've been playing it for four or five years, and I still get tripped up, and I'm just a player. <laughs> <laughs> Legends of the Five Rings Fourth Edition worked okay. Okay, I haven't tried the new one. Me neither. Well, I know for the the one shot I'm gonna do, I'm I'm gonna use this system. I'm just modifying some rules because it's gonna be very force heavy. So I'm gonna have to modify a few things. It's all gonna be story driven though. See, I don't li- I don't love the force system, um, and that is having 
when I was on um, Heroes of the Hiding Way, I played, I mean, we played those rules straight as an arrow because that was the point of that show was to demonstrate all the rules. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I found that force experience to be very frustrating. Your ability to use it is so wildly inconsistent. And it worked okay for the character because he was not primarily a force user. He was a soldier first. And then I through my whole thing on that show was i wanted to make the most ridiculous characters possible so i went i'm gonna be a mandalorian and then i had this thought on the way home in my commute and i went what if he had force powers i went that's stupid (laughs) and i went that's so stupid i have to do it now um because it was like the most 15 year old fan fiction character ever created Mm -hmm. (laughs) um so for that character the inconsistent force powers worked but when I wanted to do my Force and Destiny thing, and there's a big narrative reason for it, my, my Force powers work very differently. And I think even if I wanted to use more traditional Force powers, I might even take some of the stuff that I've been using because I think the Force power should just work when you're using it, once you get to a certain level. Like, if you're the apprentice and you're still learning, okay, it makes sense. But if you're a Jedi Master and you're like, I'm going to pull that blaster out of his hands, like, nope, I'm not. Like, why not? You've picked up a thousand things with the Force. Um, There should really be no hesitation as to whether it works or not. So, I mean, you guys probably have better experience using the Force system than I do, but I, I was very frustrated with it when I used it. Yes and no. I like how it works. Some aspects, some aspects I don't. Uh, I modify a lot of stuff just to make it balanced. Like your example with pulling the blaster out of the character's hand. If it's a minion, you're probably going to pull the blaster out. But if it's a nemesis, I want that tension of you and him fighting for it. You know, He's using his physical strength to resist your ability to use the force. So I use it very narrative in the scene mm-hmm. and what kind of makes sense to build more of the drama. Well, and my my GM philosophy, whether it's one player or five, is I only have people roll if the outcome is interesting either way. So again, pulling the blaster out of the hand of the stormtrooper, a lot of times it's not interesting if you fail that. So I'm not even going to ask you to roll other than like with Billy's character, it might be you need to roll your force die to tell me which side of the force you're drawing on because that does have character implications for him. Mm. But in general, it's like, yeah, you're gonna do it because this is what you are designed to do. This is, it, it's not fun if you're in a tug of war with a, a minion. But yes, absolutely. If, if a nemesis shows up, if one of our, big villain NPCs shows up, yeah, you're making every single one of those roles because things will go very, very differently whether you succeed or fail. I agree with mm-hmm. I agree with the statement of I only make my players roll when it's going to add tension to the scene or add to the scene. I don't, you know, if you're the computer programmer and you're just looking up general information on the hollow net, you're not going to roll. You're going to find general information. But you want to hack into the Jedi Temple? Okay, now we're rolling. Because that's got some serious consequences. Sometimes, especially with um, with slicing rolls, I will let Matt choose his own difficulty. So I will say, you know, how deep do you want to go? Like, if you want to go super deep, then make it four. If you don't want it quite, make it three. If you want a little bit, just go two. So I think that is a can be an interesting way for one player, too, where it's like, okay, how do I... Now you have a choice of how much you want to risk. Yeah, I can see that. Give them a little more control over their outcome. Awesome. Well, cool. I appreciate you guys coming out and 
joining me for this little uh, talk. It's definitely given me some good ideas and some things I'm going to work on. Uh, now I just have to sit down and plan out my little one-shot and figure out where and when and who and all that other neat stuff I'm going to do it. Yeah, and then we'll listen to it and critique you and then, you mm -hmm. know, make oh, you... Oh, yes, sure. absolutely. <laughs> no pressure. We'll just be listening to everything. <laughs> Take notes on everything I changed. <laughs> I'm going to change a lot. So, uh, once again, if you guys can just go around and uh, we'll talk about our shows and, you know, again, I appreciate you guys coming out. Angela? It's been great. Thanks so much for having us all, Chris. Uh, again, I'm Angela from the Fandible Solo Shot. Uh, we are the Force and Destiny dark side sort of story that's taking place right at the end of the Empire. We're in season four right now. It is zero BBY. So we have just left Alderaan. Who knows if we will ever see it again? You can find us at Fandible.com. That is the podcast network that we're part of. And on Twitter, we're at Solo Shot Podcast. Uh, okay, so <clears throat> I'm Chris. I'm at Silhouette Zero. It's about uh, small aliens trying to make their way in the galaxy for the first couple of seasons. And then the third season, there's a big time skip. So um, we start in the first season, I think, three ABY. And then we, we're now like 25 years later. We're like in sequel territory in terms of um, time frame. So you can find all that stuff at silzeromedia.com. That's S-I-L-Z-E-R-O. Um, while I have your ears, I will also mention that I just wrote a book uh, that has been published on uh, Amazon. It's called Heart and Soul Fist. Um, please buy it. It would make me happy. Uh, <laughs> it is about a um, teenage girl who is um, secretly a spirit warrior, and she's trying to date the guardian of the spirit world while simultaneously preventing him from being eaten by said spirits of the spirit world so if you like things like uh legend of Korra or avatar last airbender that kind of stuff you you'll like it it's a light fluffy read it's nothing nothing it's not going to change your life but it might pass the time and i'm uh mark from coruscant knights coruscant knights is a clone wars era anthology show uh, I've got a different character, a different player every couple weeks. We just had the Battle of Coruscant, so things are getting scary on Coruscant. And since we're talking about our new stuff, I've got a new show called The Other Place, which is an actual play that uses Genesis, uh, set in a homebrew world on the brink of an undead apocalypse. Nice. And you can find info about both our shows at CoruscantKnights.com or cor at Coruscant Knight on Twitter. Awesome. And I'm Chris Berlew, the Game Master for the Redemption Podcast. Uh, easiest way to get hold of me is on Twitter. It's Berlew underscore Chris, or you can just tweet at us uh, at Redemption Pod. I can also be found on a Shadow of the Demon Lord, a fantasy horror game called Tales of Blood and Stone. We are starting to record again. For anybody that's interested, we're going to get back to it. I do warn people, though, it is fantasy horror, and it's an adult game. So kids, you're not going to listen to that one. <laughs> I'm not either, because that sounds too scary. Uh, it gets pretty rough, but... <laughs> Again, thank you guys for joining us, and hopefully we can do a few more of these. Well, thank, thanks for inviting us. I, it's been nice to talk to some of you people. Um, I don't think I've ever <laughs> actually talked to any of you before. Yeah, not, not you know, quote, in, in person. <laughs>
Right. And I think, uh, you know, let's, uh, Redemption, I think you're the longest running one, right? Like your uh, oldest? I believe we are. I think I we're think on so. six years. I think we are the... I think you're the you're the elder statesman in the Star I Wars AP so. world. I don't think anyone outranks you. That's nope. Yeah, going. as I say, certainly not that still is still going. Because nope. uh, the one that was ahead of us switched to doing Firefly. Hmm. Ah. And there might be stopping that show too, so we shall see. But uh... we will win by outlasting <laughs> yes. the enemy, <laughs> not because we're good, but because we won't we're quit. Stubborn. Awesome. <laughs> well, good night, everybody. All right, thanks. <laughs>